This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith Fam, we have one of my absolute favorite authors of all time on the pod today. He's the author of seven different New York Times bestsellers. He's given some of the most watched TED Talks. He's a former columnist for the New York Times. And of course, the author of one of my most can't miss book recommendations ever, America's Prophet, Moses and the American Story. He's Bruce Feiler, and we're going to talk the Bible and contemporary life and obviously Moses. But first, let's set this bad boy up. So we're right in the middle of thinking about the book of Genesis together. And leaving aside for a moment its literary and artistic power, I actually want to step back and ask a question about the book as a whole. Historically, whether in the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition, whether from the classical period to the Renaissance and beyond, people refer to Genesis as the first book in a pentology. That is, it's the first part of a literary work divided into five. And also, in a variety of contexts since since ancient times, people have referred to these five books as the Mosaic books, the books of Moses. Now, just purely from a branding perspective, I always thought that was strange. I mean, Exodus, I get. Moses is the main protagonist of that show. And even in the later seasons of the show, Leviticus, Numbers, right, Moses is still number one on the call sheet. And as for Deuteronomy, it's literally just like an extended monologue, right, by Moses himself. But Genesis, I mean, Moses doesn't make a single appearance in that work. There's not even a hint that there's even a Moses on the horizon, right? There's zero foreshadowing. Now, look, whether you believe Moses was the book's author and editor, as I do, or whether you adopt some other theory, the one thing we all agree upon is the convention of referring to Genesis as a mosaic book. So my question is, why? What on earth does Genesis have to do with Moses? And the answer, I think, is, is quite simple, is deceptively simple. So Moses is perhaps the most influential teacher and lawgiver in history. He's certainly on the Mount Rushmore. And like all extraordinarily important people and events, it's tempting to treat them as though they emerge from nowhere, fully formed, right? Like Athena from the forehead of Zeus. But this is never the case. So much went into forming a Moses. Moses arose out of a tradition. And in fact, in order to make sense of Moses' entire life's work, Israel's covenant with God, the uniquely biblical practice of embedding law and narrative, the liberation from Egyptian tyranny, and on and on and on, you actually need to understand the stories and the traditions in which Moses himself was steeped. And that made his, his own oeuvre possible. And those stories and traditions the ones that formed Moses, that's the book of Genesis. So Genesis, in other words, is the context we need in order to make sense of the other Mosaic books. And so in that sense, it's deeply and quintessentially Mosaic. And when you think about this in an American context, the role played by Genesis in the Mosaic books is precisely the role that the Moses story itself plays in American culture. It's the background you need to understand so much of the most important moments and moral turning points in our history. And so to help tell that story and discuss, you know, so much else besides, I hope, I brought on the man who literally wrote the book on this. He's the best-selling author, brilliant writer and commentator, author of among numerous other major bestsellers, America's Prophet, Moses and the American Story. He's Bruce Feiler. Bruce, thank you so much for being here. 
There's no way I can live up to this, so we're going to call this off right here. And I'm going to declare myself at the top of the mountain because if I go the mountain, if I go down the mountain with these tablets, what am I going to find? A bunch of disappointed people. So, you know, with that overly lofty but extremely generous and kind introduction and the fact that what people do not know is this conversation not unlike the ending of the of the tablets themselves, has been rescheduled <laughs> multiple times. Uh, thank you for having me and for your for sticking with this and for um, for all you do to make these stories come alive. Spoiler alert, this is going to be awesome. I can already tell. All of our best episodes have started with uh, proclamations like that. Okay, question one. The age of exploration is a vastly exciting and in other very important ways, very frightening time in human history. But one thing that's interesting is that most of these explorers and new settlers do not use the language of the Exodus, of Moses, of fleeing from Pharaoh. Why does that language, those stories, become part of the American story and not, say, like the Canadian or the Brazilian story? Well, that's a very interesting place to start, and it's not where I thought you were going to start. And so I will start uh, in a personal place. So we're having this conversation, uh, if I look at the calendar, uh, as we set off this conversation, 56 weeks after my father died. So wow. I grew up, uh, by way of background, in Savannah, Georgia, five generations of Jews in the American South. Uh, that means I have relatives who fought on both sides of the Civil War. And I grew up in a uh, Jewish community that, you know, is not at the tip of the tongue of the American Jewish conversation, but turns out to have been quite central in the American Jewish conversation. That's Congregation Mikveh Israel, which was the third congregation. In Philadelphia. No, 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 in Savannah, actually. The one that predated the one in Philadelphia by, by <laughs> half a century. Okay, so Georgia was founded in February 1733, there were basically the British were in the Carolinas and the Catholics were in Florida and the Catholics were beginning to creep up the coast and become a threat to the kind of coveted uh, British colonies in the Carolinas. And so um, a young uh, army uh, official named James Edward Oglethorpe took a bunch of debtors out of prison and put them on a ship. And they went and they founded this buffer colony between Florida and the Carolinas. And they said no papists, no slaves. It was sort of presumed the Jews or Hebrews, as they called them at the time, would not be allowed. But what happened was that there, the, the, the town had only one doctor. And there was an outbreak of what was now considered to be pandemic flu, and the the colony was almost killed before it got started. Okay, so meanwhile, a an unexpected lifeline showed up, and that lifeline came in the form of a schooner called the William and Sarah, and it had sailed from London, almost wrecked in the Thames, almost wrecked in a. Uh, off the coast of the Carolinas and showed up with a bunch of mostly Portuguese uh, refugees and conversos, which is to say Jews who were nominally Catholic but secretly practiced Judaism in the inquisitions of that were kind of launched after the Spanish Inquisition and two German families. Okay, so you've got this bedraggled collection of Jews, Sephardic and uh, Ashkenazi, uh, almost killed multiple times on this journey. And they show up off the coast of Savannah. And guess what? They're is a doctor on board and the colony needs a doctor. And so they say, can the doctor come in? And the doctor's name was uh, Nunez, Silvio Nunez, says, 
And I always say, funnily enough, that it's the opposite of Moses. He said, let my people in. So the, the <laughs> Jews get off the ship and they settle this colony in. There's a multi-century year of people asking if there's a Jewish doctor exactly. on board. Exactly. And there's a Jewish doctor on board and he saves the colony. <laughs> and as a reward, the, the Hebrews are not supposed to be there. They allow them to set up a congregation. And two years later, they set up congregation make for Israel, which is the third oldest in the country. Now, I tell that story because you've asked me essentially a question that people don't ask all the time, which was, you know, sort of why was this story an American story and not, say, a Brazilian story? Because there were, you know, plenty of Jews in Brazil or the Caribbean. There were plenty of Jews in the Caribbean. And, on, and, and I would say for a, a host of reasons, if you look up and down, beginning with the pilgrims who land in Massachusetts, okay, to the Jews who arrive in Savannah, essentially almost exactly a century later, they were mostly religious people who felt persecuted, okay? Uh, they happened to have been Protestants in the form of the pilgrims, but Protestants who were, who were not in favor, um, who themselves had left England and gone to uh, the Netherlands. And in fact, many of the Jews had left the Iberian Peninsula and settled in Amsterdam and in London. That was sort of the center of the Jewish world in, in the founding centuries. So there was a language of fleeing, of persecution, of seeking freedom, of seeking what is it that happens once they the Israelites land in the Sinai of of, of nation building. And of course, this also happened to be at a time when, uh, you know, Protestantism was also, uh, you know, at its apogee, right? Had this happened 300 years earlier when it was largely, when Europe was largely a Catholic place, this wouldn't have happened. Catholics didn't read the Bible, okay, right? Because they were, they had a layer of priesthood between the text and the people. And a lot of the kind of Protestant ideal was that people can read the language, okay? So that's one reason. Another reason would be that, you know, beginning 150 years earlier uh, than all of this, printing became widespread. So suddenly there were Bibles, right? So they weren't just written by monks, right? Or by r rabbis in ghettos. They were printed. And this is the thing that was printed the most when printing arose. And so there were Bibles. So people knew this story and had access to this story, okay? So it's it comes in the 100 to 200 years after the Bible became the dominant story, but also, let's say, it comes 150 to 200 years before science begins to erode the monopoly that the Bible has in providing narrative, okay? So, you know, we know now, if you jump 400 years after this happened, you know, what we know today in the 21st century is that our minds are wired to process the world in story. This has a lot to do with the work I've been doing recently. Uh, the, you know, a series of books I've written, Life is in the Transitions. I've just completed a new one, which is about how we navigate life transitions. And The Search, which is a new book I've just completed about how we find meaningful work. We know it's about how we tell the story of who we are, okay? And we know that, that our brains are wired 
to process information and to communicate information and story. So we need a story. These settlers in the age of exploration, they need a story to attach themselves to. And this is happens to be by sort of a historical accident, by fate, by whatever you want to say, uh, the prominent story that existed in the world and people attach themselves to it. So picking up the story from there, you have basically two character paradigms for Moses that have made their way into the kind of popular American consciousness. One is lawgiver, right? The Moses who brings us the Ten Commandments. The other is liberator, the Moses who stands up to the tyrant Pharaoh. So one of those is the ultimate establishment figure, the man who builds society. But the other is the ultimate counterculturalist, the man who critiques society. So how should Americans reconcile this tension when they're thinking about Moses in the context of our national narrative? Well, that's also a very interesting question because, you know, my response is, where's the tension? Where's the tension between, <laughs> you know, b rights and responsibilities? I mean, mm. the, 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 the two things have always lived side by side and there is not one with the other because, you know, I, let's just unpack a little bit what, what, what you said, right? So you said that he's on the one hand lawgiver, okay, and on the one hand he's liberator, you know, I might actually invert them, which is actually closer to what happened in the story, right? So first he liberates, <laughs> and then what he finds right. is that, that they that they need some new structure, and then the law, um, or he finds, or God decides, or he and God together realize, oh, however you want to cast the biblical story. So first there's liberation, and then there's law, is actually closer to what happens in the biblical account. And the point is, you can't have one without the other, actually. And you certainly can't have freedom without some law, but also you can't have law without some freedom. And so while I agree that that is the dominant paradigm, right, which is to say at every moment of such tension, Moses appears in American life. So he appears in the moment of founding, right? Because it's the it's the period of liberation followed by, oh my God, now we have all these people. How are we going to live side by side? I mean, to, to take the example of Savannah, yet again, because in the wake of my father's death, I happened to go back and read the story and have been immersed in it and have been sort of imagining a new book that I might write about it someday. What you find is so now these 41 Jews show up in a place that they were that they were not seeking and that they were unwelcome in. And as I described in the story, there is difference between and among them, amongst the Jews. I mean, I'm, I'm I mean, I'm getting I'm going to get I'm doing everything I can to get kicked off this podcast. Differences amongst Jews. <laughs> Come on. When, when, you know, when, when people say this, I'm like, you know, when I, I say this to Jews a lot, by the way, if you think that you think that the Christians are monopolized and you think that the, you think that the Muslims are monopolized, right? There's, you know, there's 2 billion Christians, right? There's 1 billion Muslims, right? There's 14 million Jews. And you know how much unity there is among them. You're doing yourself a huge disservice if you don't think that there's the same problem between and among Christians and between and among, um, you know, Muslims. So you got you got these 41 people. I mean, like, and they don't even speak the same language, right? Some of them are Ashkenazi practicing in German, and some of them are Portuguese, and some of them are trying to use pidgin English. I mean, it's a huge, it, it's a great microcosm of, of the problems that would plague Jews, uh, you know, for the next 350 years of our existence in, you know, almost 400 now existence in uh, America. 
And that's what they find when they get to the desert, right? <laughs> so in other words, there's freedom, but now you need order. And in fact, what do they do? They get together and say, okay, we'll unify around the, the shared practices and we'll figure it out. And it's still in existence, this synagogue. My father was its president in the 70s. My mother was its first president in its 350-year history. I was bar mitzvah there. I was married there. So the point is, at every moment of freedom, there's also a tension about what happens with the revolution, right? There's freedom, but oh my God, and it takes a decade. By the way, that's a long time. I mean, think about what's happened politically in this country in the last decade The and, until you get to the Constitution in, in 1787. Okay, it happens again with the freeing of the slaves and the Civil War. You've got a freedom, but then you've got a a redefining of law. And, and you know, in each of these cases, there's also, you know, a little bit of a backsliding. Uh, and it happens again with civil rights. And for all we may, may be happening again right now in this country, right, as, as, as a kind of a realignment seems to be taking place. So, I, so I, I agree with that. And I think that's part of the answer to your question. But I also want to say there's another way of looking at the Moses story, which I think is less tense and less built on a dichotomy. And that is the story in a different telling, but the same telling, is about a flawed leader and a flawed people. And that each of them, you know, Moses begins with the flaw, right? I can't go back and free my people because I don't speak beautifully, right? You know, I'm whatever. We, we reduce it as a stutterer today, that passage that happens at the burning bush. But really, it's saying I'm not good enough to lead these these people because they're in effect gooder than me and the ta the task is grander than I am. But what happens between in the text between the freedom you could argue that the freedom you know comes when they pass through the sea of reeds but there's a passage of time before they get to the mountain and before the tablets come down. And then, and what do they do? They rebel. They want to go back, you know, bring us, you know, give those onions and leeks. They look pretty good. Like send me back into slavery. Again, we don't often, you know, linger on that story, but they're a flawed people and he's a flawed leader. And then what happens? They get to the base of the, of the mountain and he goes up and gets the tablets and he comes down and, and they've, they've built the golden calf again. And the, the tablets get broken. And then that's where, of course, God says, okay, you're going to have to spend all this time in the desert. And let's remember, neither the people nor Moses, you know, become the people that, that take the land. So it is a flawed leader and a flawed people. And I think we can't undermine the reality that that's one, another reason that the story um, uh, perseveres. That's so fascinating, right? Freedom is not sort of like a, a switch you throw. Liberty might be, right? That that might be sort of a, a, an absolute condition, but freedom might be a relative one. You know, by my lights, the greatest speech in the history of American oratory is Lincoln's second inaugural. It's my favorite. Beyond that, it's one of the most important contributions of all time to a theological understanding of, of nationhood and American peoplehood. Now, substantively, the second inaugural is an interpretation of the Exodus account, and it's an attempt to apply it and the Hebrew biblical prophetic tr tradition as a whole to the American story up to and through the Civil War. That's Lincoln's project in the second inaugural. And in the speech, one of Lincoln's core concerns is actually over biblical interpretation. He says both read the same Bible and pray to the same God and each invokes his aid against the other, right? That's one of the lines from the second inaugural. Now, Lincoln wasn't a relativist on this point. He didn't think both sides were right. He, he thought one side was objectively wrong. And he says in the very next sentence, he says, it may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other man's faces. But still, 
how do we grapple with Lincoln's point, right? How do we use the Bible when we can't agree on how to interpret it? And it's not like we have a chief judiciary like the Supreme Court for adjudicating questions like that, right? It's a cultural inheritance that we have. So what do we do? How do we solve Lincoln's problem in the second inaugural? We go back to Genesis. Oh, man, I'm just like feeding into I'm like, I'm just like fe- eating out of your hands right now. Um, <laughs> because sitting where I'm sitting right now and based on, you know, kind of what I'm thinking about right now, based on maybe even the conversation that we're having right now in the midst of turmoil in American life and polarization and all of the consequences that we all experience every day, I think the best story to answer this is the story of Joseph, okay? So there's a lot of interesting things about Joseph, right? So number one, it's a disproportionately large chunk of Genesis. And actually, you could argue that it's, if you ask people, you know, rank the greatest figures in Genesis, you know, you're going to get a lot of people before you get to Joseph, right? I, I don't know, you, you could argue what, what I mean, where, right. where would you rank them? You got Adam and Eve, okay, you've got Noah, okay, you've got, Unless they're asking Andrew Lloyd Webber, right. right? But other than that, right? You know, and that starts Andrew Lloyd, <laughs> Lloyd Webber, right? But you know, if he, uh, he 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 ends with Cinderella, by the way, sort of a, a recent right, show, right, which right. is a bit of a, a bit of a disgrace. But you know, you've got Abraham, you've got you know, you you you've got at a minimum, he's not going to be in the top three, right? I mean, anybody would put Adam and Eve, Noah, and Abraham before. I mean, maybe he would go. And binding of Isaac is up there, you know, if you're ma- even if you're making the round, Rushmore, arguably Joseph not on it. Correct. So, I mean, he's not going to be higher than fourth and he may be fifth or sixth, right? So that's interesting. But, and the other thing is that the story is the only story, if I have this correct, in the book of Genesis does, that does not have God as a character. Um, correct. But what I've been thinking about Joseph recently, because Joseph is the greatest story about, uh, Tolstoy called it the, the universal story. It's the greatest story about fractured families ever told because it has all of the things that we have now. It's got multiple wives. It's got rival children. It's a blend. It's the, maybe the first blended family. Um, and it's got, if it's not fratricide, it's, it's you know, sibling, it's favoritism. It's got one sibling turn, you know, one group band of siblings turns on another sibling. And then, then they try essentially to kill or at least to ostracize this sibling. And then this sibling goes and fulfills the destiny that they feared he'd have. He was the golden child. <laughs> Right. He then, by the way, you've got, you know, sexual assault, depending on what you want to call it, that takes place down in Egypt. Then it's got imprisonment. Then it comes using your wits to come in power. Uh, and then the families come together. And then you have this moment of reconciliation. Right. Like you you even have like bottle episodes in prison. Like it's perfect. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, it's lie. It's intergenerational trauma. I mean, it's all these things that are very, 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 very contemporary. And I have to see one of my favorite things about. America's Prophet, the book that you've been kind enough to say nice things about, is that I accidentally discovered, because I went looking for the Bible that George Washington swore the oath on uh, when he became the first president on essentially across from what is is Wall Street today uh, and the New York Stock Exchange on the the steps of of the federal building at the time. And he gets the the Mason Bible and he, he swears the oath. And everybody, that's ever written about this has said he kind of randomly opens it to a passage, okay? And that he puts his hand down and he swears the oath. But it's essentially 
the end of this story. It's essentially the moment of record. The, the passage that his hand actually rests on is the moment in Genesis where there is the reconciliation between and among the rival brothers. Now, the 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 Mason Bible. I mean, I'm holding my fingers up as we're. we're uh, ima- imagine living your life believing that this was serendipitous, right? Like, well, this is right exactly. Like anybody who's <laughs> any who knows anything about this, because the Bible Come itself, <laughs> I mean, is probably seven inches thick, right? Because right, right. and this is on. I, I I don't have the book in front of me. I mean, I actually have it over there. I could pull it out, but it's it's sort of like one. The, 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 that's not the section you. If you opened it, you would open it to something you know in the middle. And this is not in the middle. Yeah. This is much closer to the bending. It's not random. And it's that passage. And I'm convinced that not unlike. Abraham Lincoln, who also, you know, knows the heck out of his Bible that Washington knew this and that he chose this passage purposefully to send a message that we have been ignoring uh, since he first did this, whatever it was, 250 years ago. And so I think that that's essentially important. So now let's take that. Let's stipulate that's a likely reading of that event. That's George Washington. Now you've got whatever it is, 80 years later, Lincoln has to stand, okay, Lincoln, whether he learned to read in the in the log cabin with a candle or not, we don't know. But whether he learned to read with the Bible, we know. And we know he knows his Bible. He may know the Bible better than any president in the history of presidents. He knows the Bible, particularly the Hebrew Bible. Okay. Like we had Jonathan Sarna on a previous episode of the podcast. And he, he said that the high likelihood is that it's the only book Lincoln had in his house growing up, the King James. Yeah. And Jonathan, God bless him, you know, would know that in a way that I, that I might not. I mean, I would say that Jimmy (laughs) Carter, I mean, knows his Bible, but he mostly quotes the, the new Testament. So he knows, he knows the Bible and he is living in a moment, the the original polarization moment, and it wasn't just a polarization over things like slavery or states' rights or you know any other economic cause. It manif- well, it was that, but the way that it manifested itself was in a dispute over the Bible, because it's not hard <laughs> to look in the Hebrew Bible or especially the New Testament and find passages that endorse slavery. And that's what the Southerners did. They were giving an interpretation and Northerners were giving an interpretation and they were both using the same story. That's where this whole conversation began. Like it was still there in the the third quarter of the, uh, the 19th century. It was still the dominant way people told stories but it was changing fast, right? Because you already had Darwin at that point and you had you had the beginnings of rival narratives and it was an existential crisis in biblical interpretation. It was a lot of other things, but it was at its core also that. It was a crisis over the Bible because everybody believed their interpretation was right and yet there was a war and one interpretation effectively lost. And you can draw a straight line absolutely straight line between the crisis in the South over our interpretation of the Bible is wrong and the birth of evangelical Christianity essentially 30 years later in the South saying, okay, our interpretation was wrong. You know, Darwinism is sweeping the world at that point. The industrial factory and science is taking over and we are in retreat. And are we going to give up this Bible? No, we're going to double and triple down on it. And that's what creates the brand of evangelical Christianity 
that is still uh, abreast in the American South right now. And by the way, one of the strongest backbones of the modern state of Israel comes out of the, of the same thing, because once they commit to the Bible, they believe that they have to commit to what becomes the state of Israel in the next hundred years. And now the evangelical support for the state of Israel is a backbone of a lot of American support uh, for the state of Israel. You wrote a whole book, uh, and an excellent one, uh, Walking the Bible, on the importance of traveling to the lands of the Bible, and the idea being that you can learn things about the Bible from retracing its steps that you might not be able to appreciate or even know just from reading the text. And this idea has a very distinguished intellectual pedigree, right? You can find it among Jews and Christians as well in the classical period, uh, and even in the medieval period. One of my favorite examples, the legendary Jewish scholar Nachmanides actually amended parts of his magisterial biblical commentary on the basis of observations that he made from actually traveling to and living in the Holy Land. So first of all, of all the things that you learned from this undertaking, traveling to the lands of the Bible, which was your favorite? And second, or kind of 1A, what would be your pick for another great work that could be illuminated through travel, right? Like how do we start to scale out the Filarian revolution, right? Your insight in walking the Bible. Again, thank you for your kind words. For those of you who don't know, I devoted, you know, nearly a, a decade of my life to this experience of traveling uh, to places uh, in the text and reading them. Um, I think in a lot of ways, it, it came out of my life in Savannah and, and being a very place-centered person because I grew up in a historically important place where the geography itself uh, affected it. That produced Walking the Bible, and which which is about the five books. So I climbed Mount Ararat looking for Noah's Ark, and I crossed the Red Sea, and I tasted manna. And it also produced a, a follow-up book called Where God Was Born, in which I went to places in the Prophets and Kings. And so that included being you know, in Israel, that included going to Iraq in the middle of the war, and that included going to Iran and visiting places essentially of the first millennium BCE, including Babylon, and including Persepolis, which is where Cyrus was, and and the Book of Esther, and all the and all those things. And I still have a fantasy in my life of that I will keep going and do essentially the third volume of Walking the Bible, where sort of the convergence of or sort of the birth of Judaism and Christianity and the convergence around you know the the late centuries of the of the classical era and the early centuries which produced Judaism as we know it and also Christianity and and I kind of want to bring those books together and I spent the summer in I spent a month this summer living in Greece and it, it's an interesting way to to look at that story from from the point of view of southern Europe and also a TV show as you know called called Walking the Bible where I went to these places so I think that the the, the answer to the question of the primary thing I learned, it really echoes a little bit of how you asked this question, which is the importance of the land, right? And and I think that I grew up, and I think many, many Americans, many Jews, most Jews, most Christians grew up reading the book as a text and as a story. And I think fundamentally, the story is uh, about the relationship among the people, God, and the land. And if you take the land out, you can't fully understand the story. And while, okay, I, I take your point about Nachmanides, that's a quite an interesting point. I think that this was how the story was told and retold and considered and read 
say, you know, in the early years of the of the written Torah and the written Bible in the middle of the first millennium, it's how it was told before when it was an when it was an oral tradition before it was written down. But I actually think it's fair to say that after the exile from the land, right, and after the destruction of the second temple, though actually plenty of people did stay in what you know in the Holy Land or Israel today, and some went east to you know Mesopotamia and and the and the Persian Empire. Some went west. Some went south down to what is now you know Egypt for sure and Alexandria, but. Still, then, you know, Jews were restricted in a lot of ways from where they could go, and I think that the the idea that was built in to the biblical story and to the birth of Judaism, which is multiple experiences of traveling in the course of a year, were largely stripped out of structured and structural Judaism, and it became a text. And that's when the rabbinic tradition of interpretive stories having equal weight to the written stories became introduced because it was saying what you can interpret even if you're trapped in a ghetto or even if you're even if you're restricted by society and it's where spiritual Judaism come from these were you can travel in your mind you can travel interpreted you interpretively even if you can't physically go to the places so i would say that the by and large the importance of the land was stripped out for several thousand years. You're welcome to disagree with me on this. But I think that the inherited tradition that we have is a book. You want to call it a scroll? You can call it a scroll. But it still it feels like a book to me and how we process it. And the number one thing that I learned was to see it as a map, not as a book. It is to get rid of the covers, the gold on the edge, to get rid of a lot of the esteem and distance that we put between us and the stories to see it as a story to see it as a map to see it as something living and breathing i just actually went 10 days ago to a bar mitzvah in park avenue synagogue okay in the heart of new york city it's a conservative institution i was honored to to go bless the torah it was lech lecha which happens to be the portion that i read in my bar mitzvah wow uh and oh my god so like happy birthday probably <laughs> exactly right uh and and my daughters read in their benot mitzvah and as powerful as that experience was there's a lot of you know uh, kissing of the tassels and touching of the torah and there is a lot of ornamentation <laughs> that lives around these stories in jewish life right now and is essential as that has been to keeping these stories alive i also think it creates a kind of distance between us and the story and so i think that what my experience in the in the five books i've written about this and the hundreds of thousands of miles i've traveled is to scrap away and and, and, and sort of inhabit the story uh, in a way that makes it real because when you get inside the stories i think that what you realize above all especially if you do it as a writer as i am is that the stories for all their power are astonishingly incomplete Right. If I had, if I turned in the story of Abraham or Adam and Eve or even Joseph, which is a fulsome story, you know, to any editor of any publication that would say, stop, I need some more details. <laughs> what's really happening here? You know, I mean, he's, is he really, what's in his mind? Would you please interview Abraham? Is he going to kill his son? You know, it's 
like, what is going on? What is Moses experiencing on top of this mountain? How does he feel? How does he feel about coming down the mountain and, and, and um, you know, see that they've turned their backs on him? But it is that gap in the stories that gives them a lot of their power because it allows you and me and anyone listening to us and anybody today, including my 13-year-old daughters, right, who are going to, I mean, they're not 13 anymore, but when they did this to give their interpretation, uh, that's what allows them. It's their incompleteness that allows us to complete them. And I think that's what I feel about the stories after all of this, is that there is room for us to co-write them. And that's what keeps them alive. And of course, that's what we say at, at Passover. We're not just going to tell it, you know, we're going to relive it. And I think that that is what this experience has taught me, is the ability and the power in being able to do that. I want to get back to Passover in just a second. But first, you mentioned uh, another book that you wrote, a fabulous book, about your exploration of the biblical story of Abraham uh, and the book of Genesis and beyond called Abraham, A Journey to the Heart of Three Faiths. Now, to me, here's the the striking thing about Abraham. We sometimes think of him as like a proto-Moses, right? Like Moses is Jordan, but Abraham is like magic and bird, right? Like Jordan dominated the league and took it to the next level, right? But there's like a league to dominate in the first place because of what magic and bird built a generation earlier, right? But when you get down to it, Abraham and Moses actually really don't have much in common at all, right? The key difference, in fact, is that Moses is a lawgiver we spoke about earlier, a theologian, judicial authority, but Abraham is none of those things. He's uh, he's a doer, he's a holy adventurer, he's a pilgrim, but those are entirely different things, right? In fact, Jewish tradition actually preserves this distinction, I think, in the traditional ways that it refers to Moses and Abraham respectively, right? Moses is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, whereas Abraham is Avraham Avinu, Abraham, our father. So my question is, why is the story of Abraham first, right? Shouldn't the great founder or the great lawgiver be at the beginning of the story, and then you kind of get into all the outcomes of that or the the follow-on questions that, that emerge from that, right? Why does Abraham show up on screen before Moses? Uh, boy, these are interesting questions. It really is a pleasure. To, it's a pleasure to have this conversation. Well, this is a bucket list interview for me, so I gotta get in as well, the questions I can while I can. <laughs> well, this is great because it, you know, because because what's so interesting about it is that the way I'm processing these questions is uh, through through who I am right now, actually, as opposed to who I necessarily was. Uh, walking the Bible is 20 years old now, and, and Abraham turned 20 years old this fall. And um, so, for, again, just to take a half a step back for those of you who don't know. So I walked Walking the Bible in the late 1990s, and that book came out in the spring of 2001. And so it's, it turned 20 years old uh, in 2021. Six months later, of course, was 9-11. And 9-11 and, and happened, and I was in New York that morning and watched the towers fall from the 16th floor of the apartment building where I was living at the time. And I instantly went back. I mean, it was no doubt because I had just had this experience of spending a lot of time in the Middle East that who are they? Why do they hate us? Can we get along? Are we going to have a religious war? All of these conversations that we were having at the time instantly, you know, went back to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. He's the shared father of, you know, as I used the numbers earlier, 14 million Jews and 2 billion Christians and, and 1 billion Muslims. That's that's half the humans alive today. And this is the greatest family feud in history. And if we were going to, um, you know, put the world back together, we had to understand how we got from this shared ancestor to the divisions that we were facing at that time. And to a certain extent, we are still facing, though it feels slightly different now for a whole wide variety of reasons that we that we may or may not get to in this conversation. 
And I think that that that's really the answer that I would give to the question. I mean, interesting you say about, you know, Moses, our teacher and Abraham, our father, in the language of modern American life, the words that came to me were, let's do it in, well, we'll do it in the order you did it. Moses, our leader, and Abraham, our founder, mm. right? And, 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 and let's, th let's think about the, the difference there, okay? The leader is leading us, and that's a, a, a kind of a human enterprise that we are in of what are they doing? They're building an, an, an entity. They're building a, a people. They're building a nation. But the founder is there with a set of ideals that can be interpreted in multiple different ways that the leader and the follower followers in this case have to create and i think that the, that a reason that's important is the reason that i was drawn to abraham to begin with which is there are different ways of executing the vision that the founder has and i think you can argue that christianity and islam are expressions of that. They are different ways of executing the vision that the founder has, right? Which is this relationship between and among the people, the land, and God. I mean, that's what that's what Abraham creates. Okay. God says, go forth in Lachacha, but I'm not going to tell you where you're going. Right. And, and I think there's a line in that book that, that from time to time I will see quoted on the internet is the, you know, is that Abraham doesn't believe in God. He just believes God. Right. And there's a, there's a quite a big difference there. So he forges this relationship between the people and God and ultimately, ultimately the land, but he doesn't capture the land. He doesn't take over the land. You know, he builds a few altars or whatever, but it takes another. So the, the, the founder has the vision, but the vision isn't manifest. And the reason that that's important is that at, back to what we were talking about a minute ago, right? If you go, whatever it is, 2000 years later to the moment where Christianity splinters off from Judaism, they also, they don't splinter off from the founding vision. And Moses is problematic. Right, because they don't want to have to follow the six hundred thirteen laws or, or whatever else you, however, however you want to count them. They, but they go back to Abraham, and then later when Islam comes along, and they want to splinter because you know I always say that the Christians looked at like, oh, we we love this partnership, people, the land, and God, uh, but all the things, and if you you know gore the ox and the blood goes this way and that, I mean they don't want all those laws. So they say, we'll just jump, you know, piggyback over Moses and go back to Abraham. But when the Muslims come along, they kind of do the same thing. Oh, this is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And it's too confusing, you know, and, and like, what is this? So we're just going to make it much more simpler. You just have to pray five times a day and believe God and you can do this wherever. And you don't need to go with all this, all the layers that essentially Paul and then ultimately Augustine and, you know, and Constantine introduced into Judaism. I mean, Christianity, but they go back to Abraham. On a previous episode of the podcast, Antonio Garcia Martinez had a way of putting this phrase like this is just Judaism with product market fit thinking, you know? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so great. That's exactly what it is. But the important, but what is, it's not Judaism. It's before Judaism because Abraham, I mean, we can call him the first Abraham Jew, but he's not the first Jew. Nothing about Judaism is associated with Abraham, right? There is no Torah. There is no Moses, right? There is no Shabbat. There is no, all of that was invented 1500 years later. Um, and I, I stick to this. It upsets you know Jews a lot. 
but I don't see him as a Jew. He's an Israelite. He's the founder. Mm. He creates the fundamental partnership. Okay. And then Judaism, I mean, and then Moses makes him a nation, but it doesn't become religion even till 700 years after Moses. That would be my reading of the story. So you mentioned Passover earlier. Given the importance of the Moses story, for and I mean, listen, I, I also think the Abraham story, so that might be where we part ways, but still, like, I you know, Abraham, first Jew, I always that always appealed to me, but I think more fundamentally, you know, as as you said earlier, given the importance of the Moses story for American history and identity, what can Americans learn about, say, Independence Day from the biblical holiday of Passover that you mentioned earlier, right? And how Passover has developed, right? Like, should there be a July 4th Seder? Should Americans just have a Seder on July 4th? Well, I love this idea. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard it quite put that way, but I mean, what do I think? <laughs> oh, let me just let me just address your issue about um, Abraham being the first Jew. I, I get that it's appealing. And that, in fact, that was the, I like listening to what people say. You said, like, I found it appealing. Of course, it's appealing. <laughs> The problem is, is that it introduces the tension <laughs> into the story because Christians would say he's the first Christian and Muslims would even, you know, potentially argue that he's the, the first Muslim or he's, a, you know, so th that that's problematic to me because I, I see this as a universal, universal story. But I think in it is the answer to what you're saying, which is they didn't abandon him. <laughs> they didn't abandon Moses. They left Moses there, right? And um, later the Muslims would do the same thing with Paul and Jesus. They left him there. Why? Because these essential, elemental, early attachments cannot be easily shocked, okay? So I have spent the last five years collecting and analyzing hundreds. I've done 400 life stories in five years. I've collected people of all walks of life, all 50 states, people who lost limbs and lost homes and changed uh, you know, careers and changed religions and got sober and got out of bad marriages. And I have I, I have 15,000 pages of transcripts and, you know, thousands of hours of interviews and with a teams of 12 you know, a minor undertaking. <laughs> it's massive, like the, the late the the human labor involved. If I had any idea, I would have never have done it. But I wrote this book, Life Is in the Transitions, and this other book, as I said, called The Search, that'll be out in the spring of 2023. And one of the things that I've learned is that we all go through transitions, and transitions involve these phases. I call them the long goodbye, where you mourn the old you, the messy middle, where you're shedding habits and creating new ones, and the new beginning, where you unveil your new self. And one of the things that you do in moments of, of, of the messy middle, in moments of transition, is that you feel fluid and you feel disconnected. You are in the wilderness. You are by the rivers of Babylon. There I wept. But if you look at the biblical story, if you look at the Passover story, right, it fundamentally the greatest periods of growth are in those moments of disconnection, right? When Abraham leaves his quote unquote father's house and goes, you know, to a place he doesn't even know where he's going. When the Israelites leave slavery uh, and go into the wilderness, when the Israelites get kicked off out of Jerusalem and out of the land and go to Babylon and into Persia, when the Jews get kicked out of Jerusalem at the burning of the of the second temple uh, and they go out. That these are all and that's when the growth occurs, right? I mentioned Shabbat earlier. The idea of gathering on Shabbat, right, with the challah and all these prayers, that comes when? In Babylon. It's not when they're in Jerusalem. It's when they're not in Jerusalem that they want to attach themselves to what? 
to stories, to rituals. To, when you are in liquid time, you want stability. You want concrete. And what all these things do is that they remind us that we are bound to one another. Okay. And that that's what this country needs right now. So you say we need a Seder. Why do we need a Seder? Because we need to remember, we need to go back through the call, the, the foundry, the cauldron of our own moments of creation to remind us that we have been divided in the past. <laughs> okay. The 41 Jews who arrived in Savannah, Georgia, <laughs> they were split. The, the, the Gentiles, if you want to call them that, in Savannah at the time were split. And there was a rule. You can't have Hebrews, right? You can't. Have, and they're like, you know what? We, 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 the rules get thrown out. The rules got thrown out in the revolution. They got thrown out in the Civil War. They got thrown out in the Civil Rights Movement. And we're in the kind of moment like, we, like that now, where a lot of things are going on, technology and secularism and, you know, division and social justice. All these things are happening. And what an American Seder would do would remind us that we have been in moments of division like this before would allow us to retell our story so that rather than telling a story that we're being um, rent apart, we would tell a story that when you are rent apart, you can heal, you can heal the rift. Amen. That was amazing and a brilliant final answer. Bruce, thank you so much for being here. This is unbelievable. The, your spirit, what you're doing, the way you're talking about this, the way you're taking these ideas and your audience seriously. This is a, a rare treat for everybody who is with you. And I'm, and I'm delighted to join the conversation. I absolutely love it. Who's the most influential figure in American political history? Washington? Lincoln? Martin Luther King? I mean, the answer for any student of American history should be clear. It's Moses. But how does this influence pan out? And how do Moses and other biblical figures help us tell our own stories even today? I mean, how awesome was it to have Bruce on to walk us through all of this? My hope is that by exploring these stories, these channels of influence, these twists and turns of the American story itself, we can build an American future that's just a bit brighter than the one we've inhabited until now. Anyway, thanks for joining us today. This has been an absolute total blast. And while you're here, please be awesome. Head into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, Google Play, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a rating. Five stars over because it really helps people find the show. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shop podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul